And let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our study tonight. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and Lord, for the beautiful way that you've set things up for us to receive that grace and to be made right with you. Lord, we rejoice. We have hope. Lord, we're excited about the access we have into your presence through the grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to learn to walk by faith. Encourage us to do so tonight, Lord, as we work through these chapters. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. It was the spring of 58 A.D. when Paul's friend, a woman by the name of Phoebe, paid a visit to the city of Rome. Paul, you see, at the time was in Corinth, but he had heard glowing reports of this growing church. It was in Rome, the capital of the empire. And he understood the value of a church being so strategically located at the very heart of the Roman Empire. Christianity could spread far and wide. He was excited about this new church that had begun in Rome. Paul was about to depart for Jerusalem. And you remember, he had been prophesied over him that potential death, certain danger, was in store for him in Jerusalem. And so when he handed Phoebe the letter, he realized that this could be the last opportunity for him to put down on paper the wonderful truths that God had revealed to his heart. His letter to the Romans becomes the Christian's manifesto. As one man put it, when Phoebe sailed from the port of Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. Paul's letter to the Romans was his theological masterpiece. Almost every Bible doctrine finds its best defense and fullest explanation in this wonderful book of Romans. This one book has sparked revivals, has altered history, has literally transformed millions of lives. The letter begins, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. Now, if a slave had been treated benevolently and kindly by his master, after his servitude, often he would sign up to continue as a slave. Such a slave was called a bondservant, or literally a love slave, a slave born out of love. He knew he was better off in his master's house than on his own, and therefore he remained bound, not out of law, but out of love. This is how Paul felt about his master, Jesus Christ. Oh, he knew the Lord loved him, and oh, how he loved the Lord and his relationship with him was slave and master, but it too was born out of love. And I hope you have concluded that you are better off in the master's house than you are out on your own. I hope we are all love slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul also introduces himself called to be an apostle. This word apostle means sent out one. It reminds me of the old country preacher who asked the cocky young upstart, Young feller, was you sent or did you just went? A lot of pastors need to be asked that question. Understand, Paul wasn't a self-appointed preacher. He got his marching orders directly from God. And Paul is also quite clear about his message. Notice these next few verses. 
We're told that he preached Jesus, promised by the prophets, predicted in the scriptures, born of royal pedigree, validated by his resurrection, the giver of grace, received by all nations, even these Romans. In verse 8, Paul thanks God for the Romans and the witness of their faith. In verse 12, he says that he would love to visit the church at Rome at some point and experience the mutual encouragement that occurs when believers gather together. Guys, the church has been described as a blood bank. And I like the illustration. We're a blood bank. There are times when you need to go to make a donation. There are other times when you need to go to receive a transfusion. The need varies from time to time, but we all need to go, as Paul said, to be encouraged by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Even in Paul's absence, though, he wants the Romans to know that he's praying for them. Look in verse nine. He says, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. To Paul, prayer was not an afterthought. It was always the first line of offense. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, revealed to us Paul's great confidence. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Guys, the greatest power on the earth today is not the power of the atom. It's not the power of the ballot. It's not the power of the printed page. It is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is by far the most potent change agent known to mankind. It is powerful. And notice here the four W's of the gospel. Why it restores. It's not self-help. The gospel is not just wishful thinking. No, the gospel is the very power of God. Notice who it reaches. Jew and Gentile, everyone for that matter. The gospel is one size fits all. Notice when it registers. Always at the point of faith. God's power doesn't come through following a formula. It's not found at the end of some religious maze. It's found when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And then notice what it reveals. The gospel does what nothing else can do. It makes you and keeps you right with God. It accesses, it reveals God's righteousness. Let me make a statement that you don't often hear pastors say. Guys, you need to be proud. That's right. You need to be proud. But you need to be proud with a special kind of pride. Not proud in the sense of possessions or achievements or abilities, but you need a pride in the gospel. Are you proud of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You need to be. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was willing to stand up for it. He was willing to proclaim it. He was willing to live it. He was proud of the gospel. And we need that kind of pride as well. Recently, I had to go to court. Traffic court, that is. And I want you to understand, it was not I who was summoned. It was my son. I went along just to lend some moral support. But let me tell you, 
Anytime you walk into a courtroom, it's sort of an ominous experience. You don't even have to be on trial to get a little jittery, you know, to get a little antsy and uncomfortable. Well, for the next couple of chapters, I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable. For in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and going through chapter 3, Paul takes us into a courtroom. He takes us into the courtroom of God. In this court, God is the judge. Paul is the prosecutor. And you and I, we're the ones that are on trial. In the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul holds three groups of people before the bar of God. In chapter 1, he prosecutes the heathen, the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he presents evidence condemning the Hebrews or the hypocrites. And in chapter 3, he shows how that all humanity is as guilty as sin. In chapter 4, and I know before long you won't be able to wait to get there, Paul will expound to us the gospel of Jesus. But before the good news can be received, the bad news has to be believed. Before we're ready for salvation, we need to be convinced of our own sin. And Paul's going to convince us in a startling manner. You've heard of Skid Row. Well, in these next few verses, Paul begins a tour of Skid Rome. And he makes three observations about the pagans of his day. In verses 18 through 21, he tells us that they suppress the truth. In verses 22 through 27, they pervert the truth. And in verses 28 through 32, they transgress or violate the truth. Suppression, perversion, transgression. That was the history of the pagans, the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 19 that the knowledge of God is revealed to the Gentiles in two ways. It's revealed in them and it's revealed to them. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. Whether we identify it as such or not, there is a longing for God in the heart of every man and every woman. It's God's homing device that's intended to bring us back to Him. There is a longing. There is a need in our hearts for God. God has also revealed Himself to the Gentiles through nature. It's been said nature was the first missionary. Psalm 19 verse 1 puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. During the French Revolution, one of the atheistic leaders challenged a believer by saying, We're going to pull down all that reminds you of God. That Christian answered, well, you're going to have to pull down the stars. God has left himself a witness in us, in the heart of every person, and then also to us. His glory is evident in every sunset, in every night sky, in every sunrise. And verse 20 concludes that because of this witness in us and to us, we are without excuse. Yet the Gentiles not only suppressed the knowledge of God, or not only you know did they reject it, but they suppressed it. They, they didn't want it to get out. They were involved in a giant cover-up. It reminds me of the school board who banned the Christian nativity scene from the front yard of the elementary school. And it so infuriated the principal 
that he wrote on the school message board out in front these words. The Board of Education is jealous of our nativity scene, for on the board they cannot find three wise men or a virgin. (laughs) The problem with the Gentiles, Paul says, is that they suppress the truth. They try to cover up. They try to hide it. But here's the problem. The truth can't be suppressed. God has left us a witness in us and to us. You see, it's not that a person can't believe. There is plenty of evidence for the existence of God. We could go on and on with reams and reams and rolls and rolls of evidence. It's not that a person can't believe. The problem is that people won't believe. Four, once I concede that there is a God, I am no longer in position to call my own shots. Once I can see that there's a God, that there's someone in authority over me, then I must bend to his will. I must submit to his commands. Suddenly, I'm no longer the captain of my own ship. And that's why people suppress the truth. But they also, Paul says, pervert the truth. Verse 23 demonstrates that once a man rejects the true God, there is no end to the silly things that he'll worship. We're told that rather than worshiping the incorruptible God, the Gentiles turned to animals and insects and made them into idols. It amazes me how educated men. We're talking PhDs, college professors, will reject the creator and the story of the Bible and then turn around and tell you that we were placed here on earth by aliens. Silly things. Dumb things. Verse 22 says it best, professing to be wise, they became fools. Verses 24 through 27 describe the depth of their perversion. We're told in verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, over time, a person begins to resemble the object of their worship. Worship animals and you'll begin to live like one. That's why Paul says idolatry and unclean idolatry led to uncleanness and lust. Always ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. When you reject God, you reject his standards and live as you please and make yourself vulnerable to every kind of uncleanness and lust and depravity. You know, you see this phenomenon in the fallacy of evolution. We become like what we worship. You know, today we teach our kids in the public schools that they're nothing but an animal. But then we're shocked when they go out and become party animals. When they go out and live like an animal. It's alarming today to me how folks today worship and serve the creature. Animal rights. These days have eclipsed human rights. Isn't it ironic how that the government will spend millions of tax dollars to save a whale while it helps fund an abortion industry that kills human babies? I read of a doctor who was anesthetizing cats and then shooting them in the head with a BB gun to develop ways to aid human beings who were suffering the trauma of gunshot wounds. His research was actually vital to saving several of the soldiers who had been shot in the Gulf War. And yet his experiments were shut down by animal activists who thought that Snowball and Fluffy 
were more important than Private Jones and Sergeant Smith. To me, that's tragic. I got a dog. And I love my dog. But my dog was not made in the image of God. It's human beings that are made and fashioned in the image of God, not dogs and cats and animals. We should never put animal life on a par with human life. Verse 26 goes a step further toward this spiral of down this spiral of perversion. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Today, our society calls homosexuality a preference, but God has always called it a perversion. The Bible refers to it not just as a sin, but it calls it an abomination. It's a particularly repulsive and disgusting form of sin. Verses 26 and 27 here tell us four truths about homosexuality. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not noble. And it's not neutral. First, we're told that it's not natural. Notice Paul's phrases. Against nature. Leaving the natural use. Let me quote Robert Cronemeyer, who writes, Homosexuals are made, not born. From my 25 years experience as a clinical psychologist, I firmly believe homosexuality is a learned response to early painful experiences. Thus, it can be unlearned. That's what God says about it as well. Second, notice it's not normal. Paul says the homosexual burns in his lust. His desire is not a normal sexual desire. It's an appetite that's out of control, that's misdirected. Thirdly, it's not noble. Paul says men with men committing what is shameful, he calls it. It's a deformity of God's intended order. It violates sexual identities as God created them. Fourthly, it's not neutral. You see, perversions always come with penalties. Paul says, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. There are consequences. AIDS is one of them. But there are more. Not the least of which is a seared conscience. There are many gays I've met that are anything but happy and gay. There's a seared conscience. There's a depression and a low self-esteem. It's tragic. Let me say a final word to the person who's tempted with homosexual thoughts or who is even trapped in a gay lifestyle. God still loves you. Your sin is not the unpardonable sin. God is able to forgive you and God wants to set you free if you'll repent and trust in him. But notice three times. Verses 24, 26 and 28 We're told God gave them up or God gave them over. Literally, God abandons the society that abandons him. You see, God is always just a prayer away from the repentant heart of the individual. But at the same time, God abandons the corrupt society to the consequences of its corruption. 
And the acceptance and the legitimization of homosexuality is one sign, Paul says, of God's withdrawal from that society. There are, though, other warning signs. Look at the list in verses 29 through 32. And it is an awful list indeed. But look closely at some of the things in this list. Covetousness is one of them. Envy, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, backbiters, proud, disobedient to parents, unforgiving, unmerciful. You know, guys, you might not be guilty of homosexuality, but careful inspection of this list reveals that there's a sin here that can be pinned on you as well. We have all sinned. And that's Paul's point. We are all guilty before God. People magazine, not too long ago, published a poll that surveyed attitudes toward different sins. Readers quantified how they felt about specific sins. And each sin was given a numeric value called the sin coefficient, or as they shortened it, the syndex. The higher the number, the worse the sin. Murder had the highest syndex, a 9.84. Rape, 9.77. Child abuse, 9.59. Whereas what the people considered to be the more benign sins were selfishness, 4.92. Gossip, 4.1. And lust, just 3.65. Most folks viewed vice and violence with disdain while they considered the matters of the heart not as crucial. Romans chapters 2 and 3, though, teach us that God sees sin differently than we do. That God has his own syndex. That before God, our attitudes are just as important as our actions. Remember, we're in God's courtroom. While the heathen have been on trial, the Hebrews have been over in the corner, looking smug and acting self-righteous. Oh, they're glad they're not guilty of the immoral, disgusting practices of these Gentiles. But in chapter 2, Paul turns the tables on them and he puts the legalist on trial. First, Paul tells the Hebrews, be careful not to judge. Guys, always remember, when you point your finger at somebody else, there's four fingers pointing back at you. The heathen, you see, they were unrighteous, but the Hebrews, they were self-righteous. In verse 4, Paul warns them not to despise or belittle God's grace. He says, for it is the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. We need to remember that. We need to always remember that you melt a sinful heart in another person, not by cold stares of condemnation, but by bathing that person in the warmth of God's grace. You see, it's love, not judgmentalism, that draws a person to God. Remember 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. We love Him. Why? Because he first loved us. The Hebrews expected obedience from others. But God expected it out of them. You see, God is judge. And in verse 6, we're reminded that he renders to each person according to his deeds. You see, God expects more than good intentions. He wants our obedience. It's not even that we know the law. You see, the Jews, they were legal experts. They knew the law inside and out. 
But knowing and doing, Paul says, are two different things. Notice chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, Not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. Verse 15 answers a provocative question that we've all had to ask us at one time or another. What happens to the heathen who never hear God's truth? The African pygmy. The aborigine out in the outback. How will they be judged? Paul says, even without the gospel, they still have no excuse. Remember, the Gentiles are without excuse. For God has revealed his glory to them, both in them and to them. You see, every person is born with a conscience. We've been given an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong, and we're judged according to that knowledge. You see, the reason the heathen need the gospel is not that they're in utter darkness. Every man has been given a witness of God, a measure of light. The reason we need Jesus is because we've all failed to live up to the light we've been given. We're all guilty. We all need forgiveness. And Jesus is the only source of that forgiveness. The Jews knew God's will. They possessed the law. They even taught the law to others. They were living in the brightest light possible, but they were still guilty. Paul says, or Paul asked them in verse 23, he says, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In other words, you people are not practicing what you've been preaching. And the Jews tried to cover up their disobedience with a cloak of ritualism. Oh, they hoped that being circumcised would make up for their compromise. You know, people do this today. They think, oh, if I will be baptized or if I take communion, then God will overlook my sin. Verse 25, though, says that circumcision, though it might be valuable as a sign, it's never valuable as a substitute. Likewise, baptism or communion is a sign that we follow Jesus, but it never takes the place of actually following him. Rituals are like medals that people tend to wear on their lapel. They signify their spiritual rank. But God remains unimpressed. Why? Because God always looks below the lapel at what's in the heart. If you're a Hebrew reading chapter 2, you would conclude, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? Well, Paul answers that question in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The big plus for being a Jew was their access to the scriptures. They were the custodians of the word of God. And the word works. But what if it doesn't? What if you say or someone comes to you and says, well, you know, I've tried this Christian thing. You know, I've tried to follow the Bible, but it just doesn't work for me. Does that mean that God is unfaithful? Hey, understand that in every promise of God, there are two parts. God has a part and I have a part. If that promise doesn't come to pass, if the word doesn't work, Paul says the problem isn't God, the problem is me. 
The problem is you. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, let God be true, but every man a liar. Don't blame it on God. It's never God's fault. Let God be true and every man a liar. If the word doesn't yield results in your life, the problem isn't God, it's you. According to verse 9 of chapter 3, we need to add a stanza to our little Sunday school song, red and yellow, black and white. We're all sinners in God's sight. That's what Paul says. Paul has condemned the heathen, then the Hebrews, now all humanity. Look in chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. Verse 12, there is none who does good, no, not one. Don't you come up and say, wait a minute, Sandy. I'm not such a bad guy. I haven't hurt anybody. I'm a decent fellow now. Spare us the dribble. In verse 23, God has a word for you. He says, for all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hey, you might be better than me. (laughs) That's not hard. I might be better than somebody else. But we have all fallen short of God's perfect standard. That puts us all on level ground. Once a man was taking a walk through the park, he was carrying his Bible in a leather case. And a group of kids thought that it was a camera in the case. And they asked if he would take their picture. The man surprised them. He said, I already have your picture in this case. And he took out his Bible And he read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. This is our picture too. But in verse 20, Paul turns a corner. Aren't you glad? (laughs) He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the Old Testament, the law of Moses had never been intended to make a man right with God. That was never its intention. Just the opposite. The standard had been given to show us how far short we had fallen. In other words, you don't know you're speeding until you see the speed limit sign. Then then suddenly you're held responsible. God placed the Jews under the law to prove to them that they were lawless, not to make them righteous. But here's the good news, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, catch this, apart from the law is revealed, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. What man could never do, what the law could never do, Jesus Christ has done. It's through faith in Christ and faith alone that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God. Look in verse 24 at what Jesus has done for us. We're told first, He justifies us freely. In other words, God treats us just as if we'd never sinned, even when we do. And it's nothing we've done that earns or deserves this kind of treatment. It's all a free gift. We've been justified freely. It's a gift of God's grace. Verse 25 says that Jesus has become a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. I like how I like to say that propitiation. Kind of a cool sounding word. Propitiation. 
It's a hundred dollar word that means place of mercy. In the Old Testament, men found mercy at the blood splattered box. God met them over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But times have changed. Indiana Jones might still be looking for the Ark. But there's a new mercy seat. Jesus has become our place of mercy. In Him, we find God. Verse 26 makes a provocative statement. We're told that Jesus died so God could be just and the justifier. God said the wages of sin is death. When you and I sin, somebody's got to die. God can't just let you off the hook and be true to his word unless somebody dies. Hey, the judge can never fudge. In one sense, Jesus died for you. He loves you and he wants to forgive you. But in another sense, Jesus died for God. He died to satisfy God's justice and at the same time satisfy God's mercy. The crucifixion allowed God to save face and save us both at the same time. It accomplishes our salvation and God's vindication. Marvel at the wisdom of the work of Christ. Here's Paul's conclusion, verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. If Jesus did the work, we have no reason to boast. You see, legal living, it fills us with pride. But grace, it drops us to our knees. It humbles us. They say there'll be no hallelujah me's in heaven. Only hallelujahs. <laughs> Praise to Jehovah. Romans chapter 4 continues to expound the gospel of grace. God's acceptance depends not on our performance, but on our faith in his promise. And Abraham is the classic example of faith. In verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How did Abraham receive a right standing with God? Was it because of the sacrifice of his son Isaac? Was it because he was circumcised? The rabbis taught that God chose Abraham because he was perfect in all his deeds. Was it his own efforts that gained God's favor? Genesis chapter 15. Go back. Check the chronology. It comes before his sacrifice of Isaac. It comes before his circumcision. It comes at the beginning of his story. You see, Abraham was made righteous for no other reason than he believed. The same was true of another Hebrew hero, David. In verse 8, Paul quotes David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Psalm 32 was written on the heels of David's worst moment. His adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. David didn't deserve God's favor, but that's Paul's point. God's forgiveness is imputed. In other words, it's given freely. It's never earned. Righteousness will never appear on your W-2. It never will. 
It'll never appear as wages earned. It's always a free gift from God. It wasn't what Abraham did. It wasn't what David didn't do. In both cases, it was all the grace of God. Verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, fail to live by faith. Attempt being good enough for God on your own. And you will create the wrong attitude in yourself. You'll end up with the silly notion that God owes you. That's the kind of confusion that gets in the way. It should never be debt. It's by grace through faith. Which is why Paul gets bold in verse 5. He says, to him who does not work. Catch that? To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. To him who does not work, but believes. Notice it's an either or, not a both. Righteousness is not some mixture of faith and works. It's not that Jesus did 99% of what needed to be done on the cross. But you have to throw in your 1% right now. No way. It's 100% faith. Grace through faith. Read it again. To him who does not work, but believes. It's all faith. God's blessing, it's been said, is like a butterfly. Try to catch it through your own efforts and it will always flutter just out of your reach. But rest in God's grace and His blessing will land on your shoulder. When it comes to righteousness, always remember the Father thought it, the Son bought it, the Spirit taught it, the Bible brought it, Satan fought it, but it's faith that caught it. Righteousness is by faith alone. But what is real faith? Well, Paul gives us an example of real faith. He brings back Abraham to the discussion. When God promised Abraham a son, remember the old man was a hundred years old. His wife Sarah was ninety. Trust me, their biological clock had already struck midnight. But Abraham, he believed. According to verse 17, we're told that Abraham believed in a big God. A God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Verse 19 says that Abraham considered not the deadness of Sarah's womb. He acted as if the preposterous was possible. He didn't waver. But he even praised God before the child was born. It's easy to believe when we can see how God might work it out. But real faith is believing against all odds. It's faith in the unfeasible. Saving faith occurs when I take God at His word and I act on His promise to create new life in me. But someone asked, Sandy, that's not the whole story. I've read Genesis. What about Hagar? You know, what about Abraham and Hagar? Hey, Hagar isn't just a brand of slacks, you know. What about his sin? Paul just glosses right over Abraham's failure. But isn't that the point? Abraham did sin. But justification means that God is willing to treat a person as if he hasn't sinned, even when he does. 
When God forgives, he never brings it up again. And that's why it's never mentioned here in Romans chapter 4. It's justification. When God justifies a man, he tinkers with the heavenly ledgers. He blots out sin and he credits righteousness. It's an accounting procedure, but it's much more than that. For Romans chapter 5 shows us that justification affects not just my status in heaven, but my welfare here on earth. For you see, justification has its perks. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, he tells us that we receive along with it peace with God, access to God, joy in God. Verse 3 even says that we glory in tribulation. In other words, God even provides us purpose in the midst of our suffering. Note Paul's confidence in verse 3, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. The Greek word that's translated here, tribulation, means to crush or to squeeze under pressure. Perhaps that's what God is doing in your life today. Perhaps it's what He's doing in your circumstances tonight. You feel like a freshly squeezed Florida orange. He's breaking, He's crushing. But take heart. Your trial is building perseverance. It's forging character. It's stirring up hope in your heart. Trust God. Have faith. And He'll work His purposes in you. And here's the truth we need to squeeze when we're being squeezed. Verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, God's love is readable in His Word. It is visible on the cross, but the Spirit makes it tangible in our hearts. The Bible sets out God's love. On the cross, Jesus worked out God's love, but through the Holy Spirit, God pours out or spills out His love directly into our hearts. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit and let Him fill you with the wonders of God's love. It's amazing But God does not expect us to act righteous before he's willing to treat us as righteous. Notice verse 6. We're told that Jesus died for us while we were still in sin. God doesn't require us to clean up before we're clean. He takes us as we are. He makes us his friends. And then he begins to change us. He begins to change us in ways that that were for us once unchangeable. Through His power, He works miracles. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8 are some of the most beautiful verses you'll ever read. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Note the phrases, without strength, ungodly, sinners, enemies, before you gave a rip about God, Jesus died for you. It reminds me of the young man who began to date an evil, wicked woman. His mother warned him about this woman, but he refused to listen to her. And he moved in with the gal. One night she got him drunk. 
And she convinced him that in order for him to prove his love to her, he would need to take a butcher knife, go across town to his mother's house, cut out her heart, and bring it back. I told you she was a wicked woman. Well, the man did the dastardly deed. He was holding the bleeding heart right in his hands as he walked back across the town. Right before he got to the house, though, he stumbled, he slipped. And he dropped the heart on the pavement. And as the legend goes, the heart spoke to the man and said, Son, are you hurt? We've done that to Jesus. We drove the nails into his hands. We broke his heart. We cut it out. And yet now he turns to you and he says, Son, I'm concerned about your hurts. Daughter, I love you. I want to work in your life. I want to work in your heart. I want to do great things for you. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Never doubt God's love for you. When you're tempted, just look to the cross. There you'll see. There you'll know. George Jones has a country song. There's a line in it that goes, Old King Kong was just a little monkey compared to my love for you. (laughs) I wish I could sing it. (laughs) But you know, we could say the same about God's love for us, couldn't we? It's a King Kong-sized love. Remember, sin came into the world through the first man, Adam. You might call it the Adam bomb. Adam did bomb. And his mistake affected his descendants. You and I and the whole Adamic clan were born with a soiled and sin-stained nature. The expression, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. (laughs) It conveys a spiritual truth, no doubt. It's been said, in a sense, our death warrant is written into our birth certificate. And you know, there are some folks who might argue that this is unfair. Sandy, why should the whole world be punished for one man's mistake? Hey, let each person stand on his own. But think through that a minute. If I stood on my own, what makes me think that I wouldn't eventually fall just like Adam? And if we were each one required to stand on our own and I fail then I would be required to save myself on my own. You see, fairness would prove fatal. God allowed one man to doom his descendants. So in turn, one man could come along and save those descendants. This is what Paul says in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 5. He says, through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In Adam, I am a sinner, but in Christ... The sinner becomes a saint.
In Adam's family, sin and death wear the britches. But in Jesus' family, grace rules the roost. Righteousness, eternal life are enjoyed by all his followers. Adam bombed, but Jesus lived a sinless life, succeeded in every way, and now gives his righteousness to those who trust in him. And there we have the first five chapters of the book of Romans.